It's a business that it takes a lot of time. It's emotional. There's challenges. There's tons of variables you can't control. Weather, markets. So it's challenging. It's frustrating. But yet at the same time, there's opportunities to do different things and find ways that create value and go forward. The fear is, is living in the commodity business. Like it's a race to zero, right? Like everybody's trying to do it cheaper and better than you are. So as I look forward, you know, it's like, how do we start to break out of that commodity mindset to drive more value in it and keep it going longer? Welcome to Fall Line Field Nuts. I'm your host, Eric O'Brien. And I'm Clay Mitchell. Today, we're talking to Cole Pistorius. Cole has a lifelong, intense vision for farming, and he spent his childhood working on the family farm whenever he could. In 2002, after studying agricultural business in Iowa, he began farming and running the fertilizer and chemical business with his father, Gary. Cole's a sixth-generation farmer, third-generation pioneer seed dealer, and is active in the community, currently acting as chairman of the Freeborn County Corn and Soybean Growers Association. Cole married his wife, Katie, in 2005, and they have three children who already have a love for farming. In this conversation, we touch on a variety of topics with Cole, starting out with a review and origin story of his farming business, talk a little bit about some of the technologies that he's using today that he finds most valuable. And then we get into a discussion around organic farming because he has moved a significant portion of his operation into organic. We often get asked about organic farming in the context of our investors as well as companies that we work with and other farmers that we come across. And it's a topic that has a layer of mystery over it in terms of what operations are different between organic farming and conventional farming outside of the obvious no use of synthetic chemicals or fertilizers. And Cole does a really nice job here walking us through some of the very specifics of what he must do differently in his organic system versus the acres that he operates conventionally and talks a bit about the business implications of it. We found this to be a really useful and up-to-date view on what it takes to run an organic operation. Cole, just to get a sense for our listeners of your farm, I wonder if you could just first give an overview of what your farm is like today. And then I want to start asking you about how you make decisions about some of the common farming decisions on your farm. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Clay. Thanks, Eric, for having me on. Yeah, so sixth generation farm, like you said, third generation in the Pioneer Seed Sales business. Came back from college in 2002, started selling Pioneer Seed as well as working on the farm. That evolved more into more of the management side of it in 2009 when we did a merger with some other family farms to create Frontier Family Farms. Since then, that's changed and we've reverted back to just our family farm again. But ever since that time, I've been in more into the management side of the farm operation. What's the crop set that you would typically grow in a given year? So corn, soybeans, we have had some winter wheat the last few years. We don't have any this year. And then in the last few years, we've gotten into some organic production as well. Of all three of those crops? Since I've been certified, just corn last year and then soybeans this year. We are also transitioning some more acres to the organic system, which will go through the corn, soybean, wheat rotation. But we have not had the organic wheat yet. Okay, great. And that's a topic where the organic production topic is one we're going to come back to and spend a lot of time on. Cole, I know you've tried some relay intercropping as well. Just wondering, how do you think about your crop rotations every year? Do you do corn on corn, more corn soybeans? When do you decide to try a relay system? Typically, kind of depends on what the field characteristics are. Some have just historically been better at producing corn. And also the ratio of of output is just better with corn for various reasons, whether it be pH or iron chlorosis or issues like that. 
So that's part of it, just what fields can be corn on corn, which ones need to be rotated. And then the other thing that goes into it is infrastructure and grain markets. You know, obviously, some years the grain markets tell you to plant uh, more corn or more soybeans than other years. And obviously, this year was a prime example of that. Yeah, our systems kind of evolved around being like a two-thirds corn rotation, just because that's what we built the infrastructure around. And so we have the equipment capacity to handle. So that's typically where we've been is about two-thirds corn, one-third soybeans. Good. I'm sure that fertilizer prices may also play a role in that on the margin. I'm curious how you decide how much fertilizer to apply per acre. What's your soil sampling process and how do you buy fertilizer? Do you warehouse any fertilizer? Yeah. So, I mean, the last few years with the volatility and commodity prices and fertilizer inputs, that has been a huge swing. So the way I look at it and the way, you know, some other industry people look at it is how many bushels does it take to buy a ton of fertilizer? And so just always looking at that ratio and I keep a notepad on my desk and, and do it every few months and just kind of see where it's at. Right now, to look at nitrogen for next year is probably the lowest that, that ratio has been in a long, long time, which tells me that it is probably more encouraging to plant corn next year versus soybeans. As far as fertilizer rates, all the fields have been mapped with the electroconductivity cart, the Barris machine, created the management zones from that, and then we hired it all done. But they go out and pull samples from the corresponding management zones every four years. And then I import all the data and do the recs myself, like as a, a build, maintain, drawdown type equation that I have in SGIS. And then create variable rate prescription files, which go out to the fertilizer applicator. Fertilizer is stored on site. So, And how do you make decisions around what hybrids you plant? So obviously, you know, Pioneer Seed Sales Rep, obviously there's a bias there. But... You look at all the data of what hybrids are working in our area. We have replicated product knowledge plots across the district. They all get planted in the same sequence between all the sales reps or cooperators. So it's a really good data set to look and see what's working and what isn't. But I mean, typically, you just want the newest, latest, greatest because the genetic improvement that we're seeing each year just shows you that you, know, you need to plant as much of the newest one as you can. And it's like, well, there's always the fear of the unknown. But like if it's made it through you know, all the advancements of research and the impact plots and the PK plots to get to the point of the farmer. Typically, we don't have a surprise, but Mother Nature always throws a curveball every now and then. But I'm curious what your observations are as a dealer looking at other farmers. Do you think you make decisions differently from your customers? Are you kind of all planting the same thing? Most of us are all planting the same thing. You know, the, the issue with the newest, latest, greatest is we're just allocated on supply. Like we only get so much of it, you know, so it's how do you divide up the small quantities and keep everybody happy. But everybody's got to take a look at them and, and try them too. I think of you as somebody who's always got the latest machinery technology on your farm. How do you make decisions around machinery investments? Are you leasing, owning, trading? It's definitely gone up significantly Is a percentage of overall budget for farmers, machinery has. Yeah, that's for sure. It's a huge expense right now. There's no like one set answer on one way or the other. But in the last few years, Obviously, lease rates are higher because of interest. Owning is higher because of interest. But yet, at the same time, you know, year-over-year price increases are going up too, just on the equipment. But in the last few years, because of the organic system and the equipment needs for that, we've been trading more frequently than we were in the past. So right now, we're trading a good portion of the machinery every year to accommodate that because they're getting more hours. I mean, we're making all these passes through the field, so hours are racking up quicker too. And is it better just to get as many hours per machine as possible, or is there kind of a sweet spot? No, I think too many hours is 
can probably be a detriment too. And if you're looking on a used market and you got a two-year-old tractor with, you know, abnormally high hours too, that could tend to scare somebody away too. So we haven't crossed that line yet with our equipment, but you know, I would get that concern if I was looking at used equipment too. So I think there's kind of a sweet spot. You're pretty astute in how you hedge your grain and how you manage your storage. Wondered if you could give us a few kind of insights on your strategies there. Yeah. So our system, you know, we're capable of holding 100% of the crop. So that provides a lot of flexibility. You know, I don't have to sell anything, you know, out of the field or in fall that has to go to town because I don't have to have room. But yet, I don't want to miss market opportunities like there's been the last few years for early basis pushes to ethanol plants or early pushes to get early beans into a crusher or something like that. So, you know, there's three legs of grain marketing. You got carry, you got futures and basis. So you really need to look at all three separately. And typically when futures are high, basis is really weak. So there's a time to do each one at a different time than what the other one should be done. You know, you just look at this past June, what, 21st, you know, that rally that week before coming into it had a dollar rally in grain prices and corn prices. And you probably lost 70 to 80 cents on basis, you know, so if you're the cash only guy, that that hurts. So if futures are really strong price, it typically equates to a weaker base. So just trying to segregate all three of those aspects and look at it. Typically, we're trying to haul and deliver when people don't want to be selling or when commodity prices are lower. So trucks that you have that serve you during harvest, is that a good match for what you need during the year? Or are you sometimes trying to haul the markets that have where you need to hire out custom trucking or you don't quite have the equipment fleet for that. No, our truck fleet is able to handle all the harvest needs and it's, you know, the rest of the year, it's probably overkill. But yet, if you get lousy weather in December or January, you need to throw in, you know, Christmas holidays in a certain time. Like we might all just have to get in a truck and, and haul for three or five days just to manage the logistics. And then other times of the year, it might just be one or two trucks running. So really depends upon what the market's trying to tell you to do. When you look at the tools that you use to collect data, analyze data, make decisions, there's a lot of decisions you've alluded to over the past few minutes here. Are there particular software packages you're using or is it primarily internet and Excel? The internet, Excel, so I'm a huge fan of Dropbox. Like I live in Dropbox with all my spreadsheets and all that kind of stuff because I can see it on my phone, I can see it on my computer. My John Deere has been super valuable from managing the business, Look, going back and looking at data. They've advanced tremendously in the last couple of years on how you can compare different layers and look at different things. So that's really been helpful. Ag Yield has a platform for tracking the grain marketing stuff. And that has been tremendously helpful the last couple of years. So it's just trying to find like what works for you. I have a DTN subscription. So like my weather station is through DTN. So like it's got all that weather history back for back to 2017. So you know, the other day I'm like, you know, I'm trying to compare like how much rainfall we had this year versus previous years and like what's the potential of our crop? Have we limited it? Have we heard it? It's kind of nice, like once you fit the, find the system that works for you, then you kind of stick with it, even though there's a lot of new things all the time and there's all these other sources. But when you can use your own data, like rainfall right here and not, you know, the airport and overly, that's a big difference because they would get rain on days when we wouldn't. So Right. And that may be a good jumping off point to ask the question more broadly. If you think about the technologies and tools that you're using today that you weren't using, say, five years ago, any things in particular jump to mind? Yeah. I mean, like I said, the My John Deere in the last few years has really, really changed and added a lot of value in what we can look at, how we can manage the business with that versus having to just go out and you know, grab the yield map and like, well, I think this did this and 
I think this was there. I mean, like right now it's like deal by high rev. I mean, sort filters, all that stuff is super easy and fast and convenient right now. Any other software packages or hardware for that matter that you've found to be important that didn't exist five years ago or you hadn't adopted until more recently? Yeah, so we've done some work with drones. So I've had several DJI platforms using the drone deploy software. Like it's kind of like hit or miss on you know how much time is available to go utilize that stuff. But this year, we've tried to have more of an emphasis on going out and get some fields flowing. So like right now, for instance, one example, like iron chloros is showing up in soybeans and it's on a field where I variable rated an iron product with the planter on and off in the correct spots. Well, the management zones don't exactly line up with where the pH changes are of the field. And so like you can see where my planter shut off, but yet it still needed to go like 150 feet and all the beans are yellow. So we went out and flew the field, get the drone deploy map, and then I can, you know, as long as I remember it two years from now, when we go back to soybeans, adjust you know, the boundary area of where that product needs to go on or get shut off. That's a great example of just having the discipline to go out and collect data during the year. If you hadn't seen that, it would be easy to not know. It sounds kind of obvious when you explain it, but it's not something you would see from the road. You know, when you're looking out at a Minnesota cornfield, soybean field, you know, you just, these are large areas. And it requires that kind of technology that puts geospatial positions on all these data points. The hardest thing is the time to go out and, and do this stuff. I mean, because we're all pulled in so many different ways. How manual is that drone deploy solution in terms of setting it up and actually running the mission? Super simple. I mean, like you just take your phone, create your project at the edge of the field, just draw your boundary around where you want it and hit go. Once it's done, you, you got to bring the image or the card back and upload the file for that. So that takes a few minutes back in the office, but two, three hours later, you get your map and you can do ND images with it and all kinds of different things. So it's pretty seamless and quick. It takes a couple minutes for setup or a minute or two for setup, but then it takes you know 15 to 45 minutes to go fly the field. Right. And have you experimented with other visualization packages? So whether it's satellite imagery or more conventional airplane image capture versus the do-it-yourself drone solution? Yeah. Years ago, we did airplane route. It's just a matter of timing, getting it at the right time, because you don't want to call and be like, hey, I have this one field to go fly. Because when they go up and fly, like they want to fly a bunch of acres. And there's other drone companies out there that offer that service. And it's like, I don't, I don't know if I want to spend that much money to go have images of every field. Even though there's a value to it, it's hard to quantify. I'm not saying that it doesn't add value. It's just really hard to quantify over across all the acres. And did you find that satellite imagery was just not high enough resolution to make the kinds of observations that you needed to make? Correct. It's good. It's a tool. But it's at some point in the year, certain things you just need a deeper dive into. But satellite imagery is good to just do the high-level overview. And every week or two, I'll you know, scan through and kind of look at that stuff to see if anything pops out that catches my eye. But typically, what you see on the satellite imagery stuff is, well, my low areas had too much water in April or May, and now they look bad. And my hilltops look like this because we haven't had enough rain. And most of the time, like you don't see something that like pops out. Like, hey, I, this is exactly what I need to go fix. But sometimes... There's been a lot of you know promotion of carbon credit programs in the ag community. Are you participating in any of those? Yeah, I have signed up with Indigo this last winter, but I don't have all the data entered in yet to see what it amounts to yet. But it's still new. There's still a lot of questions about it. And talking to some other guys, it's like, well, we can't learn it if we don't get into it. So 
we signed up. And what were the uh, sort of specific practices or outcomes that they were rewarding farmers for? Biggest benefit one is probably cover crops, which we've done some cover crops, mixed results. But we're going to try some more again and give it another shot, try to learn from it. Mm -hmm. And is the incentive laid out for planting cover crops? When you look at that, is that enough to cover the cost of cover crops? Or is there... No. (laughs) Okay. Not yet. Not yet. You know, I think that over time, the value of the ton of carbon goes up. So there'll be more benefit to it in the future. It's just, we don't know what that number is yet. And it's kind of a vague, like, I don't actually know what it's worth for me to do it. Like, they, you plug it in their model and it gives you like this range, but I don't exactly know what it's going to be. Yet. One of the other hot areas in the ag media in recent years has been biologicals. Wondered what your experience has been there. What are your expectations for the future? So, biologicals. The Proven 40 has worked really well. We have done check strips with that. Like I'm a believer in that one. And then the Utricia. And what does that product do? Fixes nitrogen from the soil. So it goes on with the planter in furrow. There's a seed treatment version now, but I'm already set up the liquid to run in furrow. So I'm staying that route. So that's worked really well. We've done the check strips, validated it. Like I'm a believer in that. But on the organic side, obviously trying to find products that fit this market, they got to have on label. So the Corteva product, Utricia, we've been utilizing on the corn production, either in the transitional system or in organic. I haven't done check strips with it. I've just been like, you know, this is uh, conceptually from the data that I've seen from them, like this makes sense to use. And in that system, like it's one more buffer to make sure that like I'm probably don't want to be short on something. So that one has fit well there. Other biological products has been like really mixed performance. So I'd love to shift gears and talk about your integration of organic farming into your operation. Can you talk about how that interest developed and how you underwrote that as being you know, a good effort for you? Yeah, I looked at it for a few years before we got into it and got to network and meet some people that were doing it. And I was starting to hear about the technologies that they were utilizing and the production levels that they were hitting. And, and it was very intriguing. And so like I was bringing it up, thinking about it, thinking about it battling weed resistance at the time because like Enlist was coming, but it wasn't there yet. So I'm having all these weed issues. Well, if we're going to battle weed issues with other avenues, it seems like we might as well kind of break away from the commodity system a little bit and put some acres into the organic production. And the one thing that I heard that really got me convinced into it is at a conference, somebody said nutrition is a religion. And that really stuck. Like people buy what they want to buy because they feel good about it and that's what they want. You know, we can say GMOs are safe and all this stuff and there's, and they are and there's nothing against them. But if people believe that they just want to buy organic, then you're probably not going to change their mind. It's like no amount of facts is going to change an emotional argument, right? Right. You've got conviction that the market is there. You've got conviction that, you know, there's a benefit to you meeting customer needs, you know, in terms of like what this means for you in your operation. I'm curious, kind of at a field level, if you were to compare your kind of standard farming practice, which is using GMOs, using kind of standard commercial fertilizers and chemistry, fungicides, insecticides, pesticides that are synthetic, and then you change to organic, what does that mean for inputs? What does that mean for how many passes you're making? How would you compare resource use in both of those? Yeah, the organic is a lot more time consuming. There's a lot more trips through the field. 
and every trip takes a lot longer to do. I mean, so you can compare, okay, I go out with a 30-foot rollcock elevator doing 25, 30 acres an hour versus a sprayer going across the field at 200 and some acres an hour going across the field. And obviously, they got to stop and fill, but it's just a big change in the amount of time contributed to it. And that every few days, like we got to be making another pass through those fields and do it again and do it again and do it again. So it's really repetitive. But like all the technology is kind of aligned, right? Got cultivators with camera guided hitches, tractors have auto paths. So the planner records where the planner actually went, and that creates the guidance line for the tractor to drive and follow. So even around curves, side hills where the planner would drift downhill a little bit, all that stuff is all adjusted for with the auto path. So that's worked well. Section control on the cultivators as you come into point rows or odd-shaped fields, each row will individually lift up or lower down based on what kind of tillage it needs to do there. So like all these things came together and, and the system works pretty good right now. Can you give us a sense for the rough math in terms of, okay, we expect this kind of typical yield in a conventional system with this amount of, you know, sort of machinery and labor, this amount of inputs, and that kind of nets us on a per bushel basis, X dollars of cost relative to price per bushel, and then compare that in the organic system where presumably you're going to take somewhat of a yield hit and you've got significantly, it sounds like, more expense associated with the labor and machinery component, but you're getting a premium on the bushel. How far ahead are you in the organic system? Can you give us a sense for that? It's a pretty drastic difference. We're still early, so yields have been good. Like As time goes on, it's going to get harder and harder to do because your wheat bank is going to work against you. But we're still new enough that it's still manageable. We still have good production. But over time, that gets to be more challenging. Give a sense for what is the current premium per bushel for organic corn versus conventional. I want to say like organic corn is probably in the nines right now. And commercial corn is 550 futures, 200 basis, you know, 530. Mm -hmm. And when you think about yield penalty for organic, what do you factor? Initially getting into it, you know, I didn't know what to expect. So I was probably saying it was going to be, you know, 25% less production the last few years. Production has been really good with, you know, within striking distance of being the same yields. So I think there's like some benefits to having a more diverse rotation, you know? So when we, last year was first year organic corn, it was following cover crops that were behind winter wheat that were behind soybeans. So when's the last time a corn field hasn't been corn for more than one year, right? So typical rotations, corn, soybeans, corn, soybeans, or corn on corn. It's like, we didn't know what corn would do having two years off. You know, people say like soybeans do better if they follow two or three years of corn. Well, we've not, never done it in the reverse way with corn. So like we battle weed issues, insects, diseases, because all that stuff has thrived on, you know, either the 50-50 rotation or corn on corn. So if we can break up that cycle with some different crops, I think that'll be tremendous value and help us maintain good production. The way the results appear to have been for you so far, it makes you wonder, well, why isn't everyone doing this? But I think you're hinting at some of the things that can and likely will over time, you know, challenge the system. Yeah. You got to have the investment in the equipment to go do it. And you got to have labor to go do it too. And when you go out and do the same field, you know, 10 times in a row, going the same direction around it, turning the same way, it's, this is crazy. Like most people don't want to put the time in to do it. Yeah. And where have you sourced 
that labor? Is it available nearby? Have you had to bring in seasonal work? How have you managed the labor component? So far, we've been able to handle it with just our normal full-time crew and a couple part-time guys because that's the acres we're at. But as that grows, like that's going to get to be, that'll be the next hurdle is how to manage the labor aspect of it two or three years from now. We're talking about corn and soybeans here. We're not talking about strawberries and, you know, California horticultural type crops where you've got, everyone knows there's a huge labor component from a harvest perspective and from a weeding perspective when it comes to organic. What is the labor machine operator type labor or what have the high labor components been in your system? H2A workers for like manual hand weeding. So crews that come in from Mexico or wherever. And then there's actually companies that have that go around and do this stuff and then they detest them for corn. So there's crews out there for that. That's the one that can get really expensive really fast. Cause like if you have if your tillage doesn't go good and then you have to have a lot of hand labor to go out and fix the problems, then it gets really expensive real fast. That actually I didn't realize that an organic cornfield it would pay to send hand weeders out there. We see it in the Pacific Northwest where we've had some organic operations, but the crop value in a potato or onion field is significantly higher per acre than corn, but it actually still is justified in the corn system. Yeah, and you're not necessarily just doing it just for this one crop. The short-term benefit is the one crop. The long-term is I'm managing the weed bank for several years to come. So if if stuff starts to get out of hand or out of control, it just gets more costly in the future to go fix it. So trying to be really proactive and stay on top of it so that the system works for longer. Can you talk a little bit about how you manage the transition and sort of what adjustments did you need to make to the system? How were you able to monetize in those transition years? Any learnings from that process as you bring on more acres? Yeah, so the crop has got to be treated just like organic stuff. So there's no products you can use on transitional that you can on organic. So you got to manage it the same as organic system. There has been some premiums on it. There's been some premiums going into the food grade market for some non-GMO soybeans. So that's worked pretty well. In the first two years, the weeds, they haven't caught up to me yet. And also the first two years are your easiest years and it gets harder over time. But yeah, there's been some premiums to get through that. I haven't had any premiums on corn and then weed in transition. I didn't have any premiums on that. That was just standard commodity pricing stuff. What's the primary limitation now in terms of converting more acres in your operation? What would stop you from doing it or what's encouraging you to do it more? So limiting factor is access to nutrients and then our sources. You know, how much can you get? Where can you get it from? I mean, the poultry barns, there's a, you know, probably a waiting list to, to get on the list to even get any. Their costs have gone up because there's a high demand for it. Fertilizer prices were high. So we haven't utilized any of that yet. We've only utilized hog manure. Because it's close, it's accessible, we have the equipment to haul it, we know what we're doing with it, and it's worked good in the system. So limiting factor is nutrient source, availability, and cost. And the further you get away from your source of nutrients, like the higher your costs go. So like organic isn't for everybody or every place either. You know, because it doesn't make sense to be paying freight on products for you know long distances just to do it because and how we look at it, it doesn't fit on every field that we've been farming. That's not an option. I mean, there's just some farms, either topography, drainage, soil types, whatever issue, like you just wouldn't do. It It wouldn't make sense. So, which is why we've had good production because we did it on some of the best farms we have. 
you know, you can't take your bottom one that's a challenging farm and expect to have a good outcome from it in an organic system. It's not going to work. So then it's like trying to right size equipment and labor to the amount of nutrients you have and to the amount of good drainage, high fertility fields that you have that are the right shapes and the right topography to do it. So like there'll be a limiting factor or a sweet spot there. And that those are the challenges. And it may be too early to tell, but have you been sampling you know, every year to see what's happening to organic matter in the soil as you've moved to organic? No, we're, we're still too early in the cycle to tell. But like my reaction to it is, yeah, we're doing tillage a lot, but it's always that top half an inch or an inch. Like I said, it's not like we're dragging a ripper through these fields 10 times and destroying the whole soil profile every time we do tillage. You know, we just keep reshuffling that top inch layer of dirt to get the weeds out. So I don't think the carbon loss or organic matter loss is as high as what some might estimate with it. I don't have anything to back it up, but that's how I look at it. And two, yeah, you're doing more tillage, but yet at the same time, if you can add wheat and cover crops in and you manage that stuff, you know, does that offset some of the negatives of doing tillage and we maintain or maybe even increase organic matter? I don't know yet. So it's too early to tell. For farmers listening to this who have been intrigued with organic, you've talked about some of the limiting factors. Talk a little bit about the marketing side of this. How difficult is it to find offtake for your organic corn? What are the requirements in terms of you know identity preservation in storage and in transit and so forth? Yeah, it is. Well, one, the organic paperwork is a lot of paperwork. Super time consuming to do all that stuff, track all that stuff through, document everything you do. And it feels like, I haven't been through one, but like an IRS audit. I mean, it's pretty intense on the amount of record keeping and details you got to track through. So like, as we looked at it to get into it, it's like, well, I'm not going to go start with like an 80 acre field or a hundred or something like that. Just dabble in it because how do I clean out my grain system and equipment and put all this time and resources into all these things that have to be done for, you know, a couple hours worth of work in the fall with the comic. Like that doesn't make sense. You know, that's the other thing you got to factor in is all your cleanup time, you know, planters, all that stuff, all the way through to harvest, your combines, your grain system. You know, last year when we had to clean out to go to your organic corn, I mean, it was my full harvest crew all day, all day. By the time you get through combines, grain carts, trucks, dump pits, grain legs, dryers, I mean, the whole system all the way through, opening everything up, blowing it up with leaf floors or shop backs. And I mean, it just, it's super time consuming. So you try to do it all at once. And have you been through an audit cycle or what is the enforcement side of this look like? Have you been inspected or does it happen at every delivery? What are they testing for? You have to get your organic certification every year. So you got to submit all the paperwork, your operation system plan, all your documentation of how you track all this stuff through, how you maintain your records. So we've been through one year of that now and then they come and do an on-site visit. So we did that last year. There will be another one this year. I don't exactly know what date. They can do surprise inspections too. And then as far as delivery points, grain marketing, yeah, you got to fill out your affidavit that you cleaned your equipment, cleaned your trucks, billolating with it. Destinations haven't been very far away for us. We're pretty lucky there that there's a couple different destinations to go that are within a reasonable distance to haul to. And are those destinations mixed environments where they've got segregated identity preserved organic and maybe some non-gmo stuff and then conventional or do they tend to be specialized facilities that are only handling organic 
There's some of each. So the delivery aspect hasn't been too bad for us. And it's like, if you're in other areas of the country, you might just not have a good outlet for a grain buyer. So it's like I said, it's not for everybody. And as I look back, like one of the key things that helped validate that organic is going to be a market for us for a while and that, you know, we should go down this path is you see companies like Cargill get into it. You know, now you start to get some big companies, some credibility behind it as far as grain marketing stuff, because there has been a few issues around of companies that have gone broke and shady stuff that's happened. So, yeah. And how do you sort through price discovery on the organic side? I suppose maybe you don't have that many outlets, so there's only a few to shop. Phone calls, just communication and everybody staying in touch and building a relationship with the people and making sure that if they're not calling you, you're calling them, kind of seeing where things are at, the market's moving. You know, hopefully if they're a good merchandiser, they're letting you know and, and keeping that relationship up. So communication. And is there crop insurance for organic and how's that sorted? There is. Once you go into transition, you start back at county tea yield for transition. And then once you go to organic, you start at the organic county tea yield, which are really low, low levels. So there is insurance there, but it's low enough right now. Like it's quite a ways away from where actual production is. So over time, like that APH gets better and then insurance is more valuable. Well, Cole, it's really been a pleasure to talk to you today. And it's always a pleasure for me to visit your farm. And I always learn so much. And concluding here, you know, I'd love to look forward as you think about Danica, Bridget, and Kale. I'm sure you'd like for them to be in a position where they could farm if they choose to. And I uh, wondered uh, if you could give us a few thoughts on your hopes and fears for them in farming. Obviously, I want them to, but I'm not going to force them to. The opportunity is going to be there if they want. So then it's up to them to decide if that's the path that they want to go down. Fears is, is, it's a business that it takes a lot of time. It's emotional. There's challenges. There's tons of variables you can't control. Weather, markets. So it's challenging. It's frustrating. But yet at the same time, there's opportunities to do different things and find ways that create value and go forward. The fear is, is living in the commodity business. Like it's a race to zero, right? Like everybody's trying to do it cheaper and better than you are. So you're always trying to compete with somebody that's trying to do it cheaper than you. So as I look forward, you know, it's like, how do we start to break out of that that commodity mindset to drive more value in it and keep it going longer? Terrific. Well, we appreciate you sharing so much detail on this move that you've made into the organic space. We often get questions from companies that we work with on the technology side, as well as investors around, there's, I think, a lot of mystery around the organic business generally and the practices required, the premiums involved. And I think you've helped shed a lot of light into how the process works, how things get transitioned, and then where the economic opportunity is in pursuing this. So we wish you great continued luck with it. Sounds like things are off to a terrific start and hopefully they stay that way. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks. Thank you, Cole. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. That was a really good conversation. I really enjoyed hearing from Cole about the effort that it has taken to move into organic, the great luck that he's had with it so far. But in particular, when he touched on the challenges that are yet to come, because I think we can all agree that he's gotten off to a great start. There's been a fair amount of good fortune involved in that. The challenges ahead are pretty significant, but I really like the way that those challenges map to some of the solutions that we've been investing. Cole's a humble farmer. I don't think that it really came across just how precise he is, the level of craftsmanship that he's applying to these organic fields. Cole's a farmer who has historically been at the forefront of technology adoption as he's gotten into this new frontier of organic farming. It's relying on a lot of sheer skill. 
These are a lot of areas that we're really excited about in our venture investing, applying computer vision and automation to making more automated so that a lot of other farmers are able to do what Cole is now doing out there on his hands and he's making adjustments. Yeah, I think one thing that could be a misconception from this conversation is that it's so darn lucrative to be an organic farmer that everyone should just do it. And I think what Cole, as you pointed out, is so humble that what may not come across here is the level of fidelity that he's capable of executing that has made this go so well that someone without that high, high level of skill would probably have a pretty drastically different outcome. Right, and you see that as you drive across the countryside, a lot of times from the roadside, you'll see organic fields that have just failed. And when things start to go bad, it's very hard to recover. So Cole's put his emphasis on staying ahead of that, keeping the fertility up and the weed seed bank down. But I expect he'll be integrating new technology as well and need to do that. Thank you for listening to another episode of Fall Line Field Notes. We appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope you will open your favorite podcasting app and make sure you're following the show so you never miss an episode. Also, please review us on Apple Podcasts. Reviews help more people find us, and it's great to hear from you. Feel free to share this episode with a friend. If you know someone who would benefit from today's conversation, make sure to share it with them.